From Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 801 in those Bibles there in the chairs in front of you. Matthew 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. There are, in my mind at least, two angles to this story. And depending on your angle, you see different patterns develop. In that way, it's a little bit like a kaleidoscope. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Kaleidoscope from Matthew 20. In these stories, we've been trying to align our view of God in a world that often skews what God is like. And we've seen some different patterns develop within these stories. But honestly, depending on your angle, you can see a very different sort of pattern. It's the same way in a kaleidoscope. Depending on the angle of the mirror in the tube depends on what kind of pattern you see. It's the same as we think about God. And in this story, I think we've got a couple of different angles. First of all, we have the angle of the two blind men. So let me invite up some blind men to help tell the story for us today. Can you imagine their conversation? Let's, let's try to imagine the story from their angle. Bartimaeus, what's that commotion coming from Jericho? I don't know. Uh, there's a whole bunch of rich rubes over there in that city. Uh, there's, you know, that city's got a lot of money. They got a lot of clout. I mean, with all their highly priests and whatever. Uh, Herod's big winter palace and all. Uh, you know, let's stretch out our arms, see if we can get any alms. We can at least get dinner this way. That's a good idea. Uh, Wait, you know, it, I think it is the Passover time, so there'd be a lot of people coming out. Hey, maybe that one guy, Zacchaeus, will be, give us a coin or something. I hear he's loaded. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, wait, but make sure if you get anything that you put it in your pocket as soon as you can. There's a lot of thieves on this road. Wait, did I just hear someone say the, the name Jesus? Do you, you think he might be leading this group? I don't know. I'm just as blind as you. <laughs> but but imagine, imagine if he is. I mean, I heard so many great, great things about him and what he does for people and the miracles and, and helping people. Maybe he can help little people like us. We've we got to get his attention. I don't know. If it's true what they say about him being the Messiah and all, then he's like this conqueror who carries a sword and everything. I don't think he has time for two blind people like us. You may be right, but we got to try. we got to figure out a way to get his attention. What do we even call him? Well, I, I guess we call, out, we call him Lord. Lord as in sir or Lord as in Lord? No, I mean Lord as in Lord. I mean, he is in the Son of God, I mean, the Messiah, like you said. And 
maybe we should even add something like the son of David. Like we should be saying this, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Okay, that's one angle of the story. Can you imagine that conversation? The other angle of the story would probably come from the crowds. The crowds, the story says, rebuked them and told them to be quiet. So, let's imagine their angle. Here we are, the crowd, getting to follow Jesus around. It's pretty sweet. Even though we are crammed in here with all these people, it'll be so worth it when Jesus does his thing. Oh, Jesus does his thing. <laughs> Wait, what's the thing he's going to do? You know, the thing. Jesus has been talking about going to Jerusalem for a while now. So I'm guessing when he gets here, he'll finally be able, he'll finally be able to take over and kick out all the Romans. I mean, he is the Messiah. Don't you hear that? What is this interruption? Who is making such a commotion? Oh, jeez, it's a couple of beggars. Hands out, looking for some change. Tell them to shut it. Um, she says to shut it. We've got a literal king coming through. No time for your shenanigans. Don't they have a family to take care of them or something? They're probably faking it anyway. Trying to rip off the Jesus, the Roman conqueror. Excuse me, we have a literal king coming through. Please keep it moving. Bye-bye. See you later. Uh, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Oh, shush. <laughs> All right. Well, you think our storytellers this morning... <laughs> At the very least, I hope you can see a couple of angles to the story. Uh, there are in this story the shushers and the shouters. There are the inside followers of Jesus and there are the outside hopers in Jesus. Do you see it? Now, Jesus in the story knows where he's going, but it seems like everyone else that is around him are lost. You ever been lost? I mean really, really lost. It's, it, it seems to me it's becoming more and more rare these days to actually get lost with smartphones and GPS navigation systems and all the rest. You know, we might get turned around. We might get headed in the wrong direction maybe. But so much of our world is paved and is well, uh, you know, good signs and all those kinds of things. So it's harder and harder to get lost. It's not always been that way, of course. I wonder how many of you by show of hands, would say you are confident that you could navigate the world with a paper map. (laughs) Maybe I should ask if you know what a paper map even is. We start there. How many of you, by show of hands, can fold a paper map back and say, okay, pretty good. How about this? How many of you, without any other tools, can navigate by the stars? If you got lost in the dark, not many. If we get lost, we might be in trouble. Now, of course, it's not always been this way. Uh, Rebecca Solnit has written a book called um, A Field Guide to Getting Lost 
And uh, she, she hunts around in history to find out these old stories of people and uh, the way they navigated the world, how they handled it. And, and she writes about it even a century ago, not that terribly long ago, uh, people would often on trips get delayed by a day or two days. Sometimes they'd get lost in the wild or the woods for several days at a time. That was not uncommon. In fact, Daniel Boone once said, I was never lost in the woods my whole life. I love this. Though once, he said, I was confused for three days. (laughs) Can you imagine? For him, that was a legitimate difference. I'm not lost. I'm just confused. For three days. Three days in the woods. I would have been in the fetal position under a tree trunk somewhere. My face would have been on a milk carton. Three days lost. And for him, no big deal. In the old, old days... Uh, cartographers, map makers would make their maps and they would uh, try to write out the territories that they had discovered, of course, but when they reached a part of the map that was yet to be explored, they would write the words on it, terra incognita, which meant the unknown land. This was sort of a label of, of danger, a label of a place to get lost. And then, of course, some even older maps in that terra incognita section, in order to warn people, would even write language like, here be dragons or something. It was meant to warn people, this is dangerous. If you go into these unknown places, you are functionally lost. Nobody knows what's out there, and if you go there, nobody's coming to get you. Solnit goes on to say that to be lost means that our world has, quote, suddenly become larger than our knowledge of it. I like that definition. To be lost is to suddenly become aware that our world is larger than our knowledge of it. That's terra incognita. And I think that's the people in the story with Jesus, right? There are no dragons, mind you, but they are outside of the easy boundaries of everyday life. And maybe when we think about Jesus, we are too. Maybe we too are lost. We, we need to admit that our world has become larger than our knowledge of it. Maybe we need a new orientation, a new angle by which to see God in His world. So this morning, let's look at this story and the angles it offers to get a view of God that may be new and colorful for us. And so the first angle we'll look at is the view of the shushers. The crowd, it says, rebuked the beggars. And that was sort of a command language. There's a hint of a threat in that language. It's a public correction. They sought to silence these sightless roadside sitters. Now, the story begins. Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd are leaving Jericho. Now, the last time I remember reading about a large crowd leaving Jericho behind a Yeshua, was found in the book of Joshua, where the nation of Israel, a kind of an infant nation of Israel, had just come in and had defeated uh, the, the city of Jericho. You remember that story? They'd come, and God told them to march around the city seven days, and on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, and they blew trumpets on the seventh day, and the walls came down, and they took the city. It was a, a fantastic moment for the people of God coming into the promised land. And then... The large crowd, or at least an army of that uh, larger unit, were making their way out of Jericho, and they were making their way to a little town called Ai. 
And they, they got out there and they were going to militarily take that, you know, and they got to the place and a small army from that little town comes and defeats the Israelite army. And Joshua is broken. Here he was supposed to be leading the people of God into the promised land to take the promised land. And instead, he's handed a defeat by a smaller force. He falls on his face before God. He prays and God reveals to him the reason why the people of Israel didn't take that little town was because someone had taken some of the plunder from Jericho and had hoarded it away instead of honoring God by destroying it as God commanded. So there's a presentation of all the people. Joshua learned that a man named Achan had taken a Babylonian robe and some silver and some gold bars and had put it in his tent and dug a hole in the bottom of his tent and hid it and hoarded it away. And in that society, in that culture, Achan was subject to capital punishment and he lost his life there. It's a horrific scene. But do you see the angle here? Because of Achan's covetousness, because of his hoarding of this treasure, a crowd from Israel left Jericho, was blindsided, and many people lost their lives. Achan's sin was hoarding a treasure out of sight. And now this story. Another crowd leaving Jericho, and they're hoarding a treasure. This time it's a king, Yeshua. Jesus is present among them, but the crowd is shushing the blind beggars away. They're hoarding away the attention of God and the mercy of God from the lowly. Get away, shh, shh, shh. get away. Sounds so selfish, doesn't it? Sounds like history repeating itself. In fact, you don't even have to go back 1,400 years to see history repeating itself. Just go back to Matthew chapter 19, one chapter before, where the disciples are doing the same thing with kids. Remember, the little kids want to come and be blessed by Jesus, and then, shh, shh, no, 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 go away, go away. They're hoarding the mercy and the attention of God themselves. Over and over it's happening, and it, wonder, it makes me wonder, what is it that turns our kaleidoscope in life and gives us this angle on God? You know, this angle that says to, our, to, to us, man, God has given me so much wonderful mercy. God has done so many wonderful things so freely in my life. Now it's mine. Get away. What compels us to hoard away the good things God has done in our life and sort of push away other people who may want to see it? What turns in us through the years that at one time we were thrilled to invite new people to church and new people to Jesus, but over time we now complain if someone gets in our seat? What spins in our view that once had us looking out of the windows of the church and longing for people there to come and to see Jesus and to know about Jesus, but now has us staring inside the church and complaining it's not doing what we want? Have we hoarded away this Jesus as if he's ours and chased away anyone we deem undeserving who show interest in him? Shh, shh, shh. Go, go, go. No, no, not here. Not you. Go. Have we become lost? That's one angle of the story. Those are the shushers. It's a comfortable place. It's a popular place. Lots of people in that crowd. Is that the angle you'll take in your life? Now, before you decide, there's another angle in the story here. The second angle is the view of the, the shouters, right? These two beggars shout, not once in the story, but twice. And let's be honest, they're nobodies in the story. There are nobodies in Israel. They're sitting outside of one of the wealthiest cities in Judea at the time. They're in Jericho. They're not even named in the story. Just two physically handicapped fellows on the side of the road making a ruckus. 
But did you hear what they said? I mean, from the most unlikely of places, we get this helpful angle. Lord, they said. Now, the Greek language they use, kurios here, can simply mean sir, like a polite address. But in Matthew's gospel, only believers use kurios. And add to that their phrase, son of David, which is a very Jewish way of talking about the Messiah. And here you have the voice of faith. This is persevering proclamation in the midst of public pressure. This is the testimony of two or three witnesses, so important in Jewish law, to who Jesus is. And they cry to this Messiah for mercy. Now, I know these two in the story are blind, but I can't help but think that Psalm 123 must have been going through their mind as they were sitting on the road, their faces upturned to Jesus. Psalm 123 says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Look at this. Till he shows us his mercy. Do you hear the perseverance in that? The, the stick-to-itiveness, the, the, the pressure and the, the refusal to give up. Their useless eyes refuse to stop looking upon Jesus and calling upon him until he gives them his mercy. So they shout. And they shout again. I get the feeling they'd still be shouting today. In fact, what they shout is also found in Psalm 123. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We've endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Do you suppose that song snagged into their head as they sat by the road? I don't know. But in any case, these blind men, they persevered, and they shouted all the louder, and they shouted all the louder, and it makes me think about those people walking around the walls of Jericho every day for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, over and over until the walls fall, and they shout, and they shout, and they shout until Jesus stops because of their faith. And he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Sounds like kind of an odd question for us. I mean, honestly, you know, a couple of blind fellows, a miracle worker. We can sort of do the math here, can't we? Except that, of course, you know, street beggars in those days, not unlike most today who are on the side of the road, are looking for alms. They're looking for money. Jesus, I think, asked the question because he wants to determine if their cry for mercy, if they will trust him with their deepest need. I mean, if those two ask for money, well, they're probably not a whole lot different than the mother of James and John in the story right before this. You know, their mother, as well as those boys, came. Jesus asked them the same question, what is it that you want? And she wanted prosperity for kids. She wanted the alms of power. No surprise there. Not really even much faith probably needed for that. Anybody can ask God for surface-level needs, for money or power or success or whatnot. You've heard the old song, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Anybody can do that. Jesus asks these beggars what they want, and they don't hesitate. They're not panhandling for supper, not with this Messiah in their presence. They drop down to their deep, deep need. We want our sight. Now, really, who asks for that? My parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday. I told them a new coat, not new eyesight, 
I'm a reasonable man with horrible eyesight. But I don't want to put him in the position to say, you know, we just really can't do that for your birthday this year. Who do these guys think they are? What is their angle here? Well, I think it's this. They trust Jesus, the son of David, to heal their blind eyes. They trust him to meet their deepest needs. And I wonder if you trust this Jesus to meet your deepest needs. To stop him in his tracks with your persevering faith. Can you summon the energy this morning to say, God, I need this, and you're the only one who can give it to me. Even when my family thinks I'm wasting my time by shouting and praying and shouting and praying, even when my friends think I've lost a few marbles, even when the American culture around me thinks that I'm some sort of religious fanatic because I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm persevering in this, will your eyes look to the Lord your God till He shows us His mercy? That's, that's another view on this story. We could join the shouters. It's not comfortable. It's not very popular. In fact, our instant gratification society, I think, likes to shush our repeated shouts for justice in the world or to care for the lowly in our community or for abundant life in Jesus or that we pray for God's kingdom to come and His will to be done in Springfield, Illinois, as it is in heaven. So many, so many scold us. Just shut up. But some keep shouting. Is that your angle on this story and in your life? Is that the angle you'll take? Giovanni Liardo took an interesting angle on the world in 1452, speaking of cartographers. He drew this map and has lots of interesting features to it. It was one of the first maps that was able to accurately portray the shoreline around the Mediterranean Sea and most of Western Europe. It also was a calendar of sorts. There are are 10 circles kind of around the map, and they had the dates of Easter for a 95-year period on there. They had uh, some um, zodiac signs. They had some uh, lunar calendar uh, bits of information of moon phases and months and day lengths and all of that. All lots of interesting things there. But what really caught my attention about this map as I looked at it is that Jerusalem is right in the center of it. He saw his world through the angle of God's city. And I wonder how you see your world. I wonder what angle you take on it. What angle of this story captures where you are and and what you're thinking and what you see of God? Or maybe another way to ask the question is simply this. In your view, who is lost among the shushers and the shouters? Is it the crowd, the seeing crowd, marching with Jesus but hoarding His mercy to themselves? Or is it the blind beggars going nowhere but desperately needing Jesus? Which one's lost in your view, in your angle? We're sitting in a crowd today. Maybe you're here and you're comfortable in this crowd. You've seen some walls come down in your own life. God has saved you. God has forgiven you. God has provided for you. God has given you a church family. Maybe you're here, you're warm, and you're comfortable, and you're secure, and you're marching forward, and you're pretty positive you know what God's going to do next in your life, but you're lost. Or maybe you're sitting in this crowd today, and everything in you wants to scream out, I'm not okay. 
but you're a little afraid that the people around you, that the put-together people will look down their nose at you and snarl at you and say, get it together. Be quiet. Come on. Don't interrupt our march with Jesus to glory. But you're blind and you're desperate and you're lost. What do you do when you're lost? What do you do when the world has suddenly become larger than your knowledge of it? I think you need a new angle. You need a fresh spin of the kaleidoscope. And if you would dare take a look, the pattern that bursts forth from this story, I think, is simply this. The Lord offers mercy to anyone who asks, but refuses to let anyone hoard it. So choose your angle wisely.